You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Despite all your religious observance, your heart's not right with God. You're doing the church thing. You keep coming to church. You keep doing the religious thing. You claim to believe in God. You claim to know God, perhaps. That's what was happening in Mark chapter 2, and that's what was happening in Hosea's day. And though they kept up all this religious front, their hearts weren't right with God. And Gomer is meant to be a picture of that spiritual condition. How often have you gone to church because that's just what you do? How often have you sang that song that you didn't really mean? In today's message, Pastor Danny will remind you that your religious works mean nothing when there is no love or heart behind them. You can fight and strive to do what the Bible says all you want, but unless you grow a relationship with Jesus based on love, it won't work. You'll go back to that sin. You'll turn your back on him, but with love, you'll desire him more and more. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Mark, chapter 2, as he continues his message, The New Covenant. read you what I put in my notes because God gave this to me. I, I think it's so excellent. Instances of God permitting the violation of the Sabbath for the good of man proves without question God loves for, God's love for man and his intention for the Sabbath to serve man, not vice versa, which is exactly what Jesus says. He reminds him, don't you realize the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? So what we have here is a violation of the law within the law, but these violations are meant for the good of man and are motivated by God's love for man. They are also ordained by God. In other words, this was God's will, God's intention, God's plan from the beginning of time. And so I ask the question, why? Good question. Here's why. Because there's a righteousness from God apart from law. Has nothing to do with obeying the Ten Commandments. Have nothing to do with offering the right sacrifice. Has nothing to do with religious observance. Okay? Has nothing to do with law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, let's back up a verse. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Nothing wrong with the law, but God's saying through trying to keep the law, you realize you can't keep the law, and so there has to be righteousness somewhere else, righteousness from somewhere else, because if, if there's righteousness from the law, you'll never achieve it. It's impossible. You can go to church all you want, say all the Hail Marys you want. You, you can do anything religious you want. It won't, it won't measure up. It won't work. Now, what Jesus is referring to in Mark chapter 2, when he talks about taking a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, 
If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And then the new wine and the old wineskins. And if you do that, uh, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Uh, because the wine you put in, in the uh, old wineskins and the fermentation process causes those old wineskins to tear and it bursts and you lose the wine and the wineskins. Same thing with the new piece of cloth patching an old garment. It's already stretched, the old garment, and so the new piece, when, when it does so, tears the garment. What he's talking about are illustrations of the new covenant. But I was smart this time. Instead of trying to communicate 14 pages of notes, I'm only going to give you eight and a half. And we'll cover the rest next weekend. And I still got more to flesh out on that message. But we'll talk more about the old covenant versus the new covenant next week. Because one thing is clear, and we'll get into it next week, you can't mix the two. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't, you try to mix the two, it's going to mess up. You can, it's never meant to be mixed. And we got people in our day trying to take pieces of the old and mix it with the new. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Wasn't meant to work. Well, let's deal with what we have here. These two controversial things. Now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, and I emphasize, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, the new covenant is revealed in the old covenant. That's why God preordained the violation of the law within the law to show you and to show us the new covenant's in the old covenant. It's revealed there. You say, where? Where? Well, some of the things we've already covered. Let me give you another one. David goes out on his balcony. He sees Bathsheba, sins for her. He commits adultery with her. He tries to cover it up, doesn't work. He lies. He becomes a hypocrite. And he also becomes a murderer. He's an adulterer. He's a hypocrite. And he's a murderer. And as an adulterer and a murderer under the law, he should be executed. And if justice is going to be done, David has to die. No favoritism, no favoritism. And you might think it's favoritism because, hey, Nathan the prophet comes, confronts David, he's caught, he confesses his sin, and he doesn't die. But it's not favoritism. There's another word for it. It's called grace. There's a second word you put right by it. It's called mercy. Because Nathan the prophet says to David, God has forgiven your sin. The adultery, the murder. God's forgiven your sin. Not only that, God's going to continue to bless you. That's called grace. Mercy's not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. And so within the law, you have a living story of David who sins and should have died and should have suffered uh, the wrath of God under the law, but he receives mercy and he receives grace. That's in the law. It's a violation of the law. Zechariah. Now, I didn't tell you we were going to Zechariah, but if you can find Hosea, you can find Zechariah. <laughs> Zechariah, easier than Hosea, because it's the next to the last book in the Old Testament, just before Malachi, which is just before Matthew, the New Testament. So Zechariah, fascinating chapter, chapter 3. The high priest in that day is named Joshua, not the Joshua that led them across the Jordan into the land of promise, different Joshua. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Just trust me, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Christ. Christ, not an angel, the angel of the Lord. That's Christ, before he became the person Jesus. 
and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Revelation tells us Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He has something to accuse us of. Guess why? We're dirty. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What fire? Fires of hell. What he deserved. Because even though he's a high priest, he's just like any one of us. He's a sinner. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, Christ. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. There's mercy and then there's grace. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Then verse eight, listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. What? A cleansing? Undeserved? Yes. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Trust me, the branch is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's who the branch is. And then the end of verse 9, and I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. Cool stuff. We won't get into Abraham today. But the new covenant is also the Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Or Genesis 15. And then in verse 6, he said, as Abraham believed this, and because he believed it, God credited Abraham righteousness based on his belief that through a seed, a person coming for the lineage of Abraham, all the nations of the earth be blessed. We know without question, Galatians confirms for us that the seed is Christ, the branch, the Messiah. And through Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because he's the Messiah of the world. Red, yellow, black, and white. All are precious in his sight. And that's the only way to be saved, through him. Abraham believed God. He believed the gospel, the coming Messiah, and God credited him righteousness. You have it all through the Old Testament. Jeremiah, this is the last one. There are more we could go to, but Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And that's a prophecy related to the salvation of Israel yet in a future day, in one day. But this covenant that he's going to make, he says, I'll forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. First controversy Second controversy, that's what we've dealt with. Let's deal with the first one. Jesus' disciples not fasting like John the Baptist and like the Pharisees. As far as I know, the only time the Old Testament law actually commanded and required that the people fast was on the Day of Atonement. It's the most solemn of all the seven feasts that Israel was to celebrate And the atonement, just let me give you a summary of it. It's an all-for-one, one-for-all sacrifice that even though you've done all the other sacrifices under the law, this one is just an all-for-one, one-for-all, cover the sins of the nation. And it speaks of the sacrifice of Christ. 
Hebrews says every time they did the Day of Atonement, it was an annual reminder of their sins. They got to do it a year. They got to do it another year. And then they do it every year. Annual thing. Day of Atonement. And they were required to fast. It was a solemn occasion. But generally... Uh, beyond that required time under the law, there were three main reasons to fast, mourning someone's death, mourning over sin, or seeking God in prayer. It's not surprising that John's disciples fasted. John lived a very ascetic life, and it's no surprise that he would fast on some kind of regular basis and teach his disciples to do so. We know the Pharisees fasted because they did it as an act of righteousness. They thought it's, uh, God was pleased with them, and that was one of the things they did that pleased God. And so they fasted twice a week. They also did it, according to Jesus, at Matthew 23, verse 5, uh, to impress other people. Jesus said everything they do is for that reason, that motive. Uh, they love to be greeted as rabbi. They love the important seats in the synagogues. When they give to the poor, they blow trumpets, and they want everybody to know we're giving to the poor. And so everything they did religiously was for men to see. So both John the Baptist disciples and John are, are fasting for religious reasons. And let's just say the Pharisees are fasting for religious reasons. And they come along and they say, why does Jesus and the disciples not fast? Why aren't you guys fasting? And Jesus gives a tremendous clue right in the text of Mark chapter 2 as to why they're not fasting. And here's what he says. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? That's a clear clue. How can the guests of the bridegroom bridegroom, he's referring to himself. If there's a bridegroom, guess what? There has to be a bride. If there's a bridegroom and there's a bride, that means there's going to be a wedding. And I don't know how many weddings you've been to, but I've never been to a wedding where I fasted. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward and praying that they spend a lot of money. <laughs> and there's more than just, uh, you know, peanuts and punch. I'm hoping they went all out because I'm going to this wedding and you don't wedding and you don't have to buy tickets. You're invited and you go and you're praying. Yeah, yeah, boy, I pray there's a feast. <laughs> it is not an appropriate time to fast. A wedding is supposed to be a happy occasion. There's supposed to be laughter and music and dancing and, and you're supposed to be excited. And, and especially the bridegroom and the bride. So Jesus is saying. This is not an appropriate time to fast. They didn't recognize what's going on. They didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't recognize him. They didn't accept him. And so he's saying, you, you guys don't know what's happening here. This is not an appropriate time to fast. This is a time to feast. The bridegroom has come. He's come to seek out a bride. It's a time. It's a time to throw a party. And every time you turn around, you find Jesus and his disciples, and they're at a party. And the Pharisees hated that. They're fasting twice a week. And every time they turn around, Jesus and his disciples, they're feasting. And they say, why don't you fast? It's not time to fast. It's time to throw a party. Now, Matthew adds a third argument to defend his disciples. So one more time, go back to Matthew chapter 12. And let's go now. Again, verse 6, Jesus says, in regard to the priest desecrating the Sabbath day and yet are innocent, and he says, uh, and I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. I have authority. And then he says, verse 7, catch this. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now, they would have known that 
those words are taken from the middle of the minor prophet book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. That's the verse that Jesus quotes here. He says, if you'd known what this means, you'd have had the right perspective and you wouldn't have been condemning the disciples and me and them for not fasting when it's a time to feast and you wouldn't have condemned them for the kernels of grain on the Sabbath day. You wouldn't, you'd have got a better perspective. You'd have got a right perspective. They especially should have known what these words mean because now go with me back to Matthew chapter 9. I told you it was a Bible study. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, stuff we've covered so far, but let's go back anyway. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew gets up, follows him. Matthew throws a party. They get to the party. Criticism from the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Why does your master, why does he... uh, Eat with tax collectors and sinners. On hearing this, verse 12, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he gives them homework. Mark didn't tell us this, but Matthew tells us, verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He gave them homework. And they didn't do it. And if they'd have done it, they would have known. They would have seen they would have realized. Now, don't send me thank you letters. If you want to send money, that'll be okay. That was a joke for the newcomers. That was a joke. But if you send money, I'll spend it. That was a joke too. I did the homework that they didn't do. And though it's not common for the teacher to share with the students the homework they should have done, (laughs) I didn't give you the homework. Jesus gave them the homework. I'm going to tell you what they should have done. Because we want to understand what that means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And we don't want to miss out on the blessing that they missed out on. But to do so, you've got to understand a little bit about Hosea. Go back with me to the Old Testament book of Hosea. It's a minor prophet. The only reason it's called a minor prophet because it's in the group of shorter prophetic books The major prophets just are longer books. That's the only reason one's called major and one's called minor. One's not more important than the other. This is one of the minor prophets just because it's shorter. Hosea is the first book in our Bible that has been dubbed um, a minor prophet. Hosea's prophecy was God's last attempt to call the Israelites away from their idolatry and wickedness before giving them over to judgment. Through Hosea's words and his very life, uh, God makes abundantly clear how much he loves them and how much he wants to show them mercy and forgive them. Hosea's name in Hebrew literally means Yahweh has caused salvation. The Greek form of Hosea's name you'll be very familiar with, the Greek form of Hosea's name is Jesus. Chapter 1 of Hosea to understand Hosea 6, 6, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife. One translation is a wife of harlotry or a prostitute and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. It's not an excuse to marry an adulterer or a prostitute that's practicing that, but God goes to great lengths here <laughs> to prove a point and to, and to share a message. So 
Hosea obeys the Lord, and that took some doing. I mean, so he married Gomer, daughter of Deblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. He married Gomer. Imagine the first time out with this girl. Hey, hey, Hosea, what's your girlfriend's name? Gomer. Hey, what's your wife's name? Gomer. Well, God bless you. Her mother's name is Deblium. That tells us something. Why? Because Deblium, guess what it means? Raisin cakes. Why is that significant? Because raisin cakes were used in worship of false gods for ancient fertility rites and worshiping those false gods. The name suggests that Deblium is an idolatrous person, and her daughter, Gomer, follows in her mother's footsteps. If she's not a prostitute, she's like a prostitute. She's been with many lovers. And God says to Hosea, go and offer to marry her. And Hosea does, and she accepts. And she has now found love that is just, I mean, it, it doesn't, it's Hosea, a man of God, a man of God committed to the Lord. And he goes and he marries this woman of harlotry. That's quite a story. They have children. Their first son, God says, name him Jezreel. Jezreel means judgment. And the whole family is meant to be a prophetic message. They have a second child, a daughter, and God says, name her Lo Ruhama. It means not loved. In other words, I pull my love away because of your idolatry and your sinfulness. They have a third child, a son. They have a third now, and God says, name him Loami. Loami means not my people. And yet, despite the message behind uh, the relationship and even the children, God says in chapter 1, verse 2, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In a place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they'll be called sons of the living God. Chapter 2 opens, save your brothers, my people, and your sisters, my loved one. So in the midst of potential judgment, there is hope. They marry Gomer and Hosea, and after they're married, you never believe what happens. After they're married, Gomer goes back to her old ways. She goes back to her adulterous lifestyle. She's unfaithful to her bridegroom, to Hosea, who's been so good to her. Chapter 2, much of it is... um, her painful path, her unsatisfied pursuit of the blindness to the blessing she once had and how foolish the direction she's going in a fruitless life. Finally, her folly is exposed. And it's interesting, verse 11 of chapter 2, I'll stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. There you have what's meant to be the message behind the living illustration in the life of Hosea and Gomer and their children and family. It's a message to Israel. It's a message about Israel. What's the message there? Despite all your religious observance, your heart's not right with God. You're doing the church thing. You keep coming to church. You keep doing the religious thing. You claim to believe in God. You claim to know God, perhaps. That's what was happening in Mark chapter 2, and that's what was happening in Hosea's day. And though they kept up all this religious front, their hearts weren't right with God. And Gomer is meant to be a picture of that spiritual condition. But despite, despite her going away now and going back to her old lifestyle, <laughs> you get to the middle of chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, I'm going to allure her. I'll lead her into the desert. I want to speak personally to her. I want to get along with her. And I'll speak tenderly to her. 
We're so thankful to be able to share the Word of God with you here on The Living Word. Thanks for being a part of our listening audience. If you want to hear today's message again, please visit ccfstpete.church. You can also join in our Bible reading plan. Just look under the Resources tab on our website for more information. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment to ask you to partner with us here on The Living Word. Would you join with us in praying for the listeners of this program? You might not realize how powerful prayer can be, especially during such uncertain times. There might be a listener who's really struggling, and God might stir in their heart a renewal of their faith simply by listening to this program. Please pray that each person who hears these messages would find encouragement. Just as we're reminded in Mark, God came to earth as a human, suffered in all the ways we do, and ultimately came to redeem each one of us. That's the takeaway we hope every listener gains from tuning in. Please pray for us also to seek God's will for this program and for it to continue to reach people in a powerful way. Thanks for praying with and for us. With that, we've come to the end of our time with you today. Thanks for joining us as Pastor Danny continued looking at the book of Mark. We hope that you'll tune in again right here on The Living Word.